I want to welcome you all on behalf of Penn. Hello. Can everybody hear? Is the microphone working? How are we doing? Higher? Okay. No. Testing, one, two, three, four. Is everybody hearing in the back? Hello? Yeah? Okay. I'm Erica Jong. I want to welcome you on behalf of Penn to an afternoon of women reading from favorite colleagues from, in other languages. And in a way, we were thinking as we were preparing for this this afternoon in, in Pamela's office, this is what Penn is all about writers in different languages reaching out to each other across the chasm of language and culture and through the medium of words affirming their common humanity. It seems to me that every woman that I know who writes has some secret favorite um, of other women writers in other countries. And I wanted to write something about that, something to evoke how important that has been for all of us how to explain the joy of finding a secret sister of the soul through someone else's words. The heart leaps in ascent. The hair stands up on the back of the neck. One feels how to say this without being banal. One feels understood. One no longer feels oneself to be out on an ice floe in the middle of the Arctic. Connection has been made. There is a special delight in finding a foreign colleague who echoes one's innermost loves and fears. First of all, and we might as well admit it, the element of competition is removed by the fact that one writes in a different language and out of a different culture. Writers are notorious not for wishing to be the only writer who ever lived, but for wanting to be the only writer who is alive at the moment. With foreign colleagues, the curse of competitiveness is lifted and one feels free to love and praise without reservation. Writing is not a competitive sport, but the vicissitudes of publishing and reviewing went off. Is it more comfortable without the sound system? No. Shall we? I think somebody's going to there. Okay. Let's try this one. How about this one? Is this working? No. Okay. And you don't hear without the mic, huh? No, Notice how we turn to a man here. This is funny. I don't even consider it my job to try to mess with the wires. This must be some sort of sexual stereotyping. Uh, okay. With foreign colleagues, the curse of competitiveness is lifted, and one feels free to love and praise without reservation. Writing is not a competitive sport, but the vicissitudes of publishing 
and reviewing, unfortunately, often pit writers against each other as if it were. With foreign colleagues, one comes to the work purely, as with the safely dead. One feels as if the word had just been created, and one feels the excitement of being present at that event. Women writers have often felt, if not like a beleaguered minority, then at least like a secret society. We are more than half the world, yet in the world of books, we are still, as Tilly Olson says, one in 12. Our view of experience, valid and important to us, is still often deemed trivial by a patriarchal literary world, which calls the battlefield major and the boudoir minor. As if, in fact, as it in fact calls minor any activity performed largely by women, like having babies and protecting family harmony, making sure, in short, that life goes on. To find a woman from another culture keeping the flame is a specially poignant experience. It confirms our common humanity in a way even praise from a member of our own culture does not. To have a woman from Tokyo tell me, I am Isadora Wing, or a woman from Belgrade stop me on the street to talk about Fanny Hackabout Jones validates me as a writer in a special way. I feel that I have transcended the trap of my own culture. The writers you will hear today are doing the same, transcending parochialism to affirm humanity, transcending language to affirm the muse. I thought, by way of introduction, I would read one poem um, from a writer that probably a lot of you have not, not heard of. Her name is Gertrude Kolmar. Uh, she had the unfortunate uh, story of being born a Jew in Berlin uh, during the time of the Nazis. So she was a German poet doing her best work in the 1930s. She died at the age of 48 in Auschwitz. Um, prior to that, she had worked in a forced labor camp and had taught herself Hebrew in order to write her final poems, which were destroyed by the Nazis, in Hebrew as a kind of act of transcendence. And in fact, although those poems exist in spirit, they, they don't exist on paper because they're all gone. They were destroyed by the Nazis. But during the period of the 1930s, she wrote several volumes of poetry in German. And these have survived and been translated. So this is from Gertrude Kolmar, someone I feel lucky to have discovered. Meditation. When I am dead, my name will glide above the world a little while. When I am dead, I might still hide somewhere beyond the field, across the stile. But I will be lost and gone, drained from a broken basin like the rain, like a secret gift the fairies have withdrawn, or a puff of smoke from a speeding train. When I am dead, my heart and breast will fade. What moved, what strengthened me will change to nothing, and my hands alone will rest beside me, quiet, open, strange. Above my forehead, as before the end of night, a cavern's mouth will swallow all the stars, and hung from shadow stone in vaulted light, a huge gray drapery will fold enormous bars. When I must die, I want to stop and rest and turn my face inside and close it like a picture chest in which a child has looked and cried. Then deep and well I'll sleep the night.
for I have left a thing for which I stand, a trembling waxen light to watch me until I wake into another land. She reminds me of, of all the poets whose works were lost entirely, but some few of hers remained. We're going to first hear from Eileen Lottman, who will be reading from Charlotte Wagner. Eileen Lottman has written six original novels and 12 novels based on films and other sources. She edits the Penn newsletter for us, and she serves on the Freedom to Write and the Women's Committees of Penn. Eileen. Can you hear me? Yes. They can hear me. Can you hear me? I, I, don't, I don't count on this one. They, can. <laughs> they okay. can't hear you. Sure. Charlotte Wagner is uh, the pen name of Marianne Veron, who is uh, very well known and highly esteemed in France as a translator from English and Italian into French. She has translated all the works of Doris Lessing as well as scores of other writers, and she has received literary awards for her translations. Her own first novel is entitled La Lorone, uh, which is a slightly archaic and ironic word whose closest English equivalent would be the hussy. The novel is written in strong street, street slang uh, in the language of the rebellious teenage girl of the 60s who finds the morals of this world, especially the sexual inequities, unfair, in fact grotesque, and almost impossible to live through. Uh, La Lerone was written under a pseudonym, Charlotte Wagner, in order not to embarrass the author's family, since the novel is clearly autobiographical. Uh, but the re stand up. Stand, please, stand. Do I have to? <laughs> Can you hear me? Is this working? OK. Uh, La Lerone was written under a pseudonym of Charlotte Wagner in order not to embarrass the author's family since the novel is clearly autobiographical. But the reviews were so good that the French press quickly uh, identified her. And Marianne took a deep breath and sat still for interviews and photographs. And uh, it's nice to note that not only a, a, a new literary reputation was born, but um, the relationship with her family was improved much. Although her mother says she'll never read the book. Marianne is now at work on her second novel while continuing full-time translating work to support herself and her two sons. She's a single parent. Uh, it was very hard to find an American publisher interested in a first novel from France, uh, even with the stir that it caused there. One editor, Patrick O'Connor, loved the book and decided that he would publish it, but unfortunately he was working at the time for Pinnacle Books. He was going to package it carefully and try to get it some attention, but then he changed jobs, and the new editor at Pinnacle decided that since it was about sexual coming of age and it was French, it should be sold as a salacious book. The hussy became Sweet Cakes, and another red-hot French sex novel died on the paperback Stands of America. Um, Marianne and I have been signing our letters to each other ever since with such nom de plume as hot cakes, sweet buns, things like that. 
Uh, but uh, since no one here would dream of judging a book by its cover, I will now read from La Lorone by Marianne Barone, also known as Sweetcakes by Charlotte Wagner. And I will read the first chapter. My parents were no better and no worse than most. In fact, some kids actually thought I was pretty lucky. As parents go, they were relatively young and very cultured, as if I gave a damn about culture. My dad taught humanities to shitloads full of morons who dreamed of someday pulling exactly the same load, regurgitating with a flourish what they had gulped down in pain. As for my mother, having also taught those same humanities for a couple of months, she dedicated herself to bestowing her absolute knowledge of all the educational and psychological sciences to her own brood. One of her firm convictions was that psychiatry was a con game run by madmen and trendy gangsters. The fortunate offspring of this enlightened pair were soaked in culture. We poured out quotations, spewed etymology, but mostly we dripped with the sweet, righteous juice of our parents' faith. We belonged to the educated, happy few. No mysteries remained for us. My father readily described himself as an intellectual. The fact was we lived under so didactic a rule that I sometimes got pissed off enough to call it only to myself, never allowed by the satisfyingly grim name of dictatorship. There were four of us to share the weight of this perfect upbringing. Our parents were ever alert to the pitfalls of intellectual backsliding, but we were four against two. Despite the organization of the system, the first three of us were nicely united. My big brother only came back from his boarding school on vacations. My kid sister accepted bribes from our mother's secret funds to keep an eye on me but she shared the money with me and she told no tales. And then far behind, an extraneous brother. We looked on him as a gadget for a while, sometimes a nuisance, sometimes cute, assuming he would one day take his place in the Grand Alliance, but he turned out to be a nasty little stool pigeon. All this crowd dwelt in a big old apartment quite dark near the Luxembourg Gardens. I suppose looking back, there was plenty to be grateful for, but of course, when they are yours, any parents are a terrible cross to bear. On top of everything else, mine had God nearby at all times ready for use. As far as I was concerned, I had very little use for God. To start with, he had made me rather plain. I was mad for sports, which met my parents' approval. I belonged to a running club with some older cousins and their friends. Not because I was all that serious about running, but I was the only girl in the club, and I figured someone might fall in love with me. All of them, I kind of hoped, but one would be enough. I'd already had one affair of the heart by the time I was 13. An English boy named David had stayed with us that year. He was 15 and very handsome. He used to cut tree leaves into the shape of hearts, and he constantly sighed with a lot of feeling. One day he kissed the corner of my mouth and held my hand a little bit. Oh, what a terrible sin. I shivered all over and felt guilty for doing dirty things. The next day I found myself dripping with blood, pregnant. <laughs> I locked myself in the john. My mother was shaking the doorknob and her voice was getting sharp. Get out of there, you've been blocking the way for hours now. What a drag, there she was getting on me for hogging the bathroom and I was paralyzed on the B-Day, pregnant, dying. Finally, I guess she got worried and asked me through the door, what's happening? Nothing special, just a little bleeding. I see. A long silence. 
I expected her to panic, to ask what kind of bleeding, to break down the door to save my life. But she seemed irrationally calm. Well, this will happen sometimes now. Don't worry, I'll bring you what you need. This was as close as she and I ever got to the subject of female anatomy, reproduction, or, God forbid, sex. She dumped a little heap of things in front of the door and walked away so that I could sneak open the door a little bit and take in the whole caboodle. It was awful with that stuff between your legs. You had to go and dump it into the garbage can unseen. You had to remember to bring in a clean one to change. You had to be aware of, be, you had to be aware of encounters in corridors. And then you had to be careful not to obstruct the pipes. When you obstructed the pipes, there was a red flood with bits of gauze and cotton stuff floating all over, and all of it had a sickening sweet stink. Horrors. I used to think I'd die from this embarrassing condition. Why did it have to happen to me? One day I was not careful enough, and David said, you have your period, does it ache? The ugly pig, he knew what it was called. I was mortified, but at least I knew now, too. <laughs> I checked with some friends at school, and he was right. I was 14 and a half when I joined the running club. I distrusted boys. They told dirty stories and made jokes and acted rough. What I wanted was for a boy to caress me all over, but not to kiss me. I thought mouths were disgusting. It was the other part I was keenly interested in. It took me a long time before I learned what to call the little thing so nice and warm hidden up there. When I found out, I was very proud. It was not mentioned in the New Testament, not even where it talked about Mary Magdalene, the big sinner. Once in front of my mother, I said clitorian instead of vegetarian. <laughs> I don't think she caught it. She didn't say anything anyway, and I figured free speech was in. But a couple of days later, I told my sister she had a face like balls just for fun, and whack, I got a loud slap. My mother heard that one. My grandmother came to look after us for a while when my mother became ill and went into the hospital. She was nice, my granny, proper but nice too. My father was always at the hospital and granny didn't keep too much watch over us. She thought of my mother all the time and said rosaries to help save her and she forgot to cook dinner or buy bread. There was a boy at the running club, not the best looking, but he liked me so I said to myself, oh well, he's not too bad. His name was Alain, which I thought fairly tacky and he drove a quattro chevaux Renault. I much preferred the deux chevaux Citroën, but any car was something. He studied electronics, which of course was nowhere near as elegant as political science, but the poli-sci students didn't even look at me, whereas he gave me sidelong glances and told his jokes in a softer voice than most of the other boys. Alain was probably in his early 20s, but he seemed to like me, and I acted as much the movie siren as I could. One day he kissed me with his tongue all limp and slimy. It was disgusting. I really wanted to puke, but we were in his car, so all I said was, I feel a little sick. <laughs> then he tried to feel my breasts, but I was wearing two sweaters knit by my grandmother and an overcoat so he couldn't do much. I was really put off. What a pig this guy was. Once or twice on Sundays after the club sessions, he took me to Saint-Sulpice Church for Mass and then drove me home. He received communion, but I was starving. He told me that his father was a process server and that he himself worked several times a week with juvenile offenders. I think I was supposed to be impressed. Well, I was, rather. 
One Sunday, Alan asked if I'd like to go to the movies the following Thursday afternoon. He'd meet me at three o'clock in front of the Luxembourg station. What ecstasy, a real date, the movies with a boy. It was a landmark first for me. I wore my blue corduroy skirt with a flowery blouse, and I felt womanly to the point of shuddering. No coat, it was a lovely May afternoon. He said, it doesn't start till four, let's go home and have a drink first. I was flattered to be invited to the house of a process server and to meet Alain's mothers and sisters who must be very proper. They would ask me how my mother was doing in the hospital. I was mentally polishing my best manners while we climbed the stairs. I had plenty of time. There were seven flights. I was thinking how shit poor it looked, more like someone's back door. This was not a very rich process server. It was a tiny maid's room with a bed, a chair, and a few books on a shelf. Alain banged the door shut and locked it quickly. I sat on the edge of the chair, not much at ease. Shit, he was going to kiss me again. He was trying to suck in my tongue and undo my blouse, and I said, well, let's go. And he said, no, there's plenty of time. Want some port wine? I clung to my glass, holding it in front of me to sort of hide my breasts. I really wanted to go to the movies, but I couldn't insist since he was the one who would be paying for it. Of course, you don't give pocket money to girls. It rots them. So they end up having to depend on boys. One does not mention the things some of the bad ones expect and demand in return for their money. The good ones supposedly pay purely out of a sense of duty, or so we were led to believe. In our tradition, everyone pretends that all is well and proper, and the girl gets herself fucked swiftly before going home. I was stuck there in the maid's room at the top of the house, locked in with Alain and not knowing what to do. I busied myself drinking too much wine. In our family, young ladies didn't drink, so I didn't know how much I could handle. I was getting rather woozy after a while and still no movies in the near future. After a certain amount of yanking, the zipper of my skirt broke. I was trying to put my bra back on while he was pulling at my panties. For me, the worst of all was that he wanted to see my breasts. I was ashamed of those soft pink little tips, so ugly. A shoulder, now that's something round, all in the real color of skin, firm with a bone underneath, but a breast is all soft and boneless. And I had never been able to hook up my bra properly in the back. It was a thing in white satin, which I used to fasten first on my stomach and then turn around before slipping my arms through the straps. But I couldn't do that now, and I was going bonkers trying to put the thing on while he was trying to take it off. All of a sudden, I was on the bed with my garter belt snapping, and it was just like the bra. I wasn't very good at hooking that up either. I clenched my teeth to keep his tongue out, and I held my hands tightly over my breasts. I cried a little. I felt sick. Then he was crushing me and tearing into my belly again and again, and it hurt. I bit him and begged him, stop it, stop it. You hurt me. Take your hand away. Stop. I tried to scratch him, but he was breathing very heavily and didn't seem to notice me. I felt like a calf in a slaughterhouse being struck again and again, missed and struck endlessly until it dies of pain and madness, a poor calf who understands nothing. His fingers were pushing into me, and then it was not his fingers. Stop it, stop it. I was sobbing wetly, hiccuping and weeping. He couldn't have cared less. Suddenly, someone banged on the door. He stopped hammering that thing inside me. I was terrified. If my father found out, I was in for some real punishment. Alain got up, and I hurried to my feet, too. We said nothing. The banging at the door went on. I grabbed my clothes, shaking terribly. Alain shoved me toward a tiny closet with my wine glass and my clothes over my arm. I very much wanted to pee, but of course I would have died before saying so. What if it was the police, if someone had heard me screaming and called them? 
they'd probably throw me in the penitentiary. Waiting inside the little closet, my panic only increased when I thought of that disgusting red thing of his, swollen like a disease. It was with that ugly business that he had slashed me, the son of a bitch. What a horror, for all my having looked away, even afterwards in the dark closet, I could see nothing but that. It must have been some hideous problem he had, because my baby brother's little thing had nothing in common with that. I was sober now. My legs were limp, my heart was throbbing like a power hammer, and my head was reeling with the smell of dust and mothballs. Whoever had been at the door was gone finally, and I was let out. I dressed somehow, I tried to camouflage the damage, but I had bled slightly, and we had definitely missed the movie. It was five o'clock. He had managed quite cheaply on the whole. I had to go home now, and he had to go take care of his offenders anyway. At home, I had expected to run discreetly for safety to my room, but I found my grandmother kneeling in the hallway with her rosary in hand, crying. My mother had had some kind of stroke in the hospital, and she might even die right now. I was annoyed. Granny would have liked me to help her pray, but no thanks, I had my mind on something else. My head was full of bubbles like fizz water, making me stagger. I really felt like crawling into bed, but there were fireworks going off in my chest and my blood was pounding. I ran to see a friend. On the landing outside her door, I told her everything at once. Alain, my mother, I was bleeding, I was scared. I stammered and sniffed at my old tears, even as the new ones overflowed and broke down my last shreds of dignity. She understood nothing. All she could say was, I can't believe it, you slept with him, really? She could see nothing else. At the door to my house, he had said, see you next Thursday, okay? The next day at school, I was very popular for about half a minute. What movie did you see? Did he kiss you? And I couldn't help it. There I was crying, trying to explain, and they said, how disgusting, sleeping with men at your age. It's filthy. And then I was all alone. Nobody talked to me anymore at all. Cast in the role of Scarlet Woman, the knowledgeable one, I played it to the hilt. Nose in the air, refusing to mix it up with the other trollops in the school, a loner. But Thursday came, and my stomach ached with nervousness. What would Alain choose to do with me? I huddled in my room. Granny was at the hospital, and only my father was home that afternoon. I had just about decided to confront Alain. I would meet him at the Luxembourg station and tell him that if I was pregnant, he'd have to marry me, and he must never talk to me again. Just then, my father called me into his office. I want to talk to you. My worst fears realized. It smells of cigar, and there is a violin crying in the smoke. Oh, I wish I could disappear. But now for the big show. It starts with, my dear girl, you must feel somewhat lost when your mother is so ill that she may even die. He cries quietly. I have neglected you in the past weeks, but I would like you to speak frankly. Maybe someday a man will try to take advantage of you. Maybe one has even tried already. He looks at me sadly, another tear wells up with the violin moaning and the smoke curling up out of the ashtray. I squeeze out a tear. My guts ache. I want to run outside to see trees and grass, to run all alone for the sake of fresh air, the pleasure of breathing. I say no, nobody has bothered me. Now my tears are genuine. He kisses me, crying too, telling me something about God, because such an opportunity doesn't happen along just any time. And then I say, now I'll go and see Mom. We are both relieved to have it over with. I run down the Rue d'Assas, hair flying and almost laughing. I've missed the date with Alain. At the hospital, they tell me my mother is much better. I am nice, and I kiss her, although she is yellow and smells of medicine. The nurse says, what a nice big girl you have. I sit quietly, being nice, collecting my thoughts. I'm glad Granny left before I got here.
Can I go on? Is there's a couple more pages? Have I used up my time? There's a couple more pages. Okay. Suddenly it's almost eight, and I'd better dash if I don't want to miss dinner. I have a bus token, but there's no bus. Galloping full speed up the Rue d'Assin, I hear a whistle from a cafe. A quick sidelong look to see if there is anyone worth a smile, and pow, I hit a street lamp with my temple, hard. I can't remember how I got back home, but it was too late for a bowl of soup. I didn't care at that point. My head was clanging like church bells. I zigzagged, mostly by guesswork and memory, to the john and threw up one good spurt before falling into bed. The next morning, I couldn't stand up because of the whirling, and there were black things floating in front of my eyes. I saw everything double and blurred and bouncing so hard nothing would focus. I stayed in bed feeling too sick to eat. Colors were strange and I put on my sunglasses, but I could see around the lenses along the sides and it hurt my eyes. Once the phone rang and I heard Granny running to get it. She was always afraid it would be the hospital calling to say that my mother had died. I heard her say, no, she is ill, in a deliberately unpleasant voice. And then she hung up firmly. I heard her mumble, what an education, boys calling girls. After a day or two, she said, get up now, we'll go and see the doctor. Jesus, what an effort to avoid hitting all those floating things which would disappear and then keep showing up in different places. I tried to stay in the middle of them, but it wasn't easy with my radar out of commission. We finally got to the street, and walking slowly, she hauled me along, toddling sweetly under her black hat bristling with big hat pins. Once in a while, I wanted to laugh and had to stop and give my stomach a chance to catch up. Cars would screech and honk, and with my head clanging and hissing, it made quite a commotion. Granny kept dragging me along, pulling on my cloud, and somehow we made it all the way to the doctor's office. The doctor asked, what's wrong, honey? I was trying to concentrate, trying to decide whether to tell him what a crummy thing it was to call a patient honey, but I couldn't seem to get it together. Granny told him that I had banged my head, and ever since then I had been making a lot of fuss with those dark glasses, which made me look like God knows what. But of course, with my mother in the hospital, some understanding was required. My cheek was, uh, was duly padded. They talked about my mother in subdued voices, her ovaries and all that stuff. Then he patted my cheek again and said, well, it will soon be summer now. There's nothing serious to worry about. It will all be forgotten after the vacation. He gave some news of his wife, his children, his mother-in-law. We all kissed each other, see you soon, and we staggered back as we had come. Granny felt much better now that she knew I had nothing wrong. You're next going to hear from Amy Clampett, who is the author of two books of poetry, Kingfisher and What the Light Was Like. Um, she has another book in preparation called Archaic Figure that's supposed to be published next year, and she will be reading from Loris Edmund, who she'll tell you something about. never heard of Loris Edmund until last June when I met her in hello
happens when this is touched, I'm not sure it is. Try not to touch it. I think that's the ticket. I'll, I'll adjust the volume from over here. Okay. Uh, Loris Edmund is probably not a familiar name to most of you. She does write in English. I can't, I don't dare move it because... <laughs> Why don't you, what's comfortable for you? That's fine. Okay. Let's hope. Uh, Laura Sedman does write in English. She is not, I'm not reading translations. Uh, but since she lives in New Zealand, she is probably just as unfamiliar to most of you as she was to me until I met her last June in England. Um, she is a very distinguished poet. She started publishing rather late in life, which is one reason that she uh, was endeared to me instantly. Uh, she's published five books of poetry. Um, and um, what, what makes her interesting and, and forges a kind of link, I think, with all of us is uh, that she spent some time in France quite recently um, at Monton, where, uh, in the house where Catherine Mansfield lived. Of course, when one thinks about New Zealand authors, Catherine Mansfield is the one who comes to mind. Um, and so there, there is the connection made. Apparently, there is a regular uh, sequence of people going to live where Catherine Mansfield did. Uh, the poems I'm going to read, some of them have to do with the setting in France, and some of them have to do with New Zealand, and sometimes with both, and some with other places. Easter Sunday in Monton. The afternoon's still. Spring rain falls straight, drenching wild roses that hang their heads over this cracked stone wall. Last night, the people carried the wooden body of Jesus, black-wrapped, through the streets of the old town, singing in high, sad voices as they've done for a thousand years. Today, they hang crimson silk on the pillars of Saint Michel, for Christ risen on Easter Day. The rich tourists are left to the cafes or to elbow about in the gift shops, shouting they don't speak the local lingo. I, too, am a stranger not less for knowing I shall read my own name on a locked letterbox in the next lane. I remember Easter as gathering mushrooms in wet paddocks, piling raw logs on the hearth, in the sting of the smoke, lighting the first fires on autumn evenings. The road is deserted. There are a few shut iron gates in the hedges, eddies of mud, rubbish tins, and the roses. Their scent is sharp in the rain. Femme Agé. I was pretty once. I say it judiciously. And he was mad for me. But I married my one true love, my man, my laughing companion. So he went into the church. Now both are dead. Alone, I have to be the creature I've become, the cruel jailer that was born in me. And since it will not, it will not want to die, now takes my form.
I am disgusting to myself, who once was beautiful to them. This trembling jaw, my clumsy step supported by a stick, the veined old hand that grips it like a claw. No man could so possess me, nor so mock. Was this the pact my faithless body made? Only a woman can be so betrayed. One way. Rain at evening, the ghostly outlines of rain. In a foreign garden, the shadow of places I shall never come to again. What an endless leaving our lives are. How they stretch back, complete with houses and people, all directions familiar. Those we knew, still yarning to one another at doorways or in chairs out on the veranda, looking up at the weather, or in town at dusk, hurrying to the bus stop, remembering near home to pick up a paper and cigarettes from the last little shop. There, we say, that was home, and look for ourselves in their faces. But there is nothing. They don't want us back. Perhaps we too have become, for them, the old town now left behind forever. And there is only some strange garden, palm leaves, rain. Going to Moscow. The raspberries they gave us for dessert were delicious, sharp-tasting and furry, served in tiny white bowls. You spooned cream onto mine, explaining I'd find it sour. The waitress, with huge eyes and a tuft of hair pinched like a cupie, so wanted to please us, she dropped two plates as she swooped through the kitchen door. No one could reassure her. Snow was falling. When you spoke across the narrow white cloth, I could scarcely hear for the distance, nor see you through floating drifts. Then the tall aunt brought out her dog, a small prickly sprig like a toy. We put on our coats, and in the domed silence, Chekhov, the old master, nodded at us from the wings. At last, at the last, my frozen lips would not kiss you. I could do nothing but talk to the terrible little dog, but you stood still, your polished boots swelling up like farm boots. There are always some who stay in the country when others are going to Moscow. Your eyes were a dark lake bruised by the winter trees. And finally, at Delphi. This is about the Sibyl who delivered uh, the oracles. No one knows how she was chosen, only that she must have passed 50, and when the god called, she must leave at once. Her children she might not speak to again. Naturally, she had come to think of them with a certain mildness. On a hot morning down in the Gulf, see her gossiping to her daughter as to another village wife, though the girl's swollen belly is a shared particular. Almost equally, they enjoyed jeering at ribaldries of neighbors, their shrewd peasant faces at such moments strikingly alike. It is a priest who arrives now, speaking in a strange dialect, some tribe in the hills more than likely, and launches into a queer rhetoric to do with the power of sacrifice, the all-pervading might of Apollo, telling her softly that kings will come to her where she sits high on the three-cornered throne to learn the God's inscrutable will. 
But she knows only that the women have drawn back. Eyes peering round homely pillars are suddenly secret with fear. That home has already, that home has already fallen away as surely as friends from a leper. And this is the time. He leads her through the hushed marketplace, the pregnant girl alone and motionless by the well, her young head haloed by the black Corinthian sun. Climbing slowly in the heat to the shade of a cypress, I have entered 3,000 years' silence, but the sacred Castalian spring is the sound of a woman weeping. Okay, this is really a treat. These are all writers that I've never heard of. I think they're wonderful. Next, you're going to hear from Jewel Gomez, who is a poet and the author of The Lipstick Papers and currently literary reviewer for The Village Voice, Belle Lette, and the Wellesley Women's Review of Books. She is currently on, at work on a collection of vampire stories. Okay. Welcome. It's a real pleasure to be here um, because I consider this one of the few organizations that really addresses an issue that's quite important to me, and that is the amazing provinciality of some New York poet mavens. Um, <laughs> I say some um, because you find in New York it seems that people from uptown don't go downtown, people who are downtown don't go uptown, east side writers don't read on west side reading series. And um, in t pretty much a total ignorance of the cultural input, international cultural input, uh, that makes American writing what it is today. Um, I find it more than of intellectual interest because as a black American, it creates a lot of problems. Um, Afro-Americans don't generally get invited to be on a reading series unless they are full professors or have hardcover books. Uh, Hispanic Americans don't get invited unless they're from some other country, like you know Central or South America. And Asian Americans don't get invited at all unless they're going to basement workshop. So this is something that uh, organizations like this have, have addressed in some way and acknowledge the international perspective of writing and of the international ideals that Americans who write in this country have. And I'm really appreciative of that. And sometimes I feel if it weren't for some of the feminist publications like Icon and 13th Moon and Conditions, I would never read on a multinational reading series ever in this country. And the thing that's really sad about it is that it carries over to the publishing arena. Um, I, this collection of stories that I'm doing, I've you know, sent out and the first place I sent it, the editor said, these are really interesting stories, but uh, I can't sell, you know, like vampire stories. I said, okay. I'll get, an, you know, look for another publisher who's into fantasy fiction. And I looked at another publisher, and the publisher said, oh, well, uh, I'm sorry. We, I really can't sell 
lesbian stories. And I said, oh, they, they're supposed to be vampire stories and she's a lesbian. He says, well, okay, you can't sell that. I'll go on to someone else. So I sent it to another publisher. He says, I really have a hard time selling black material to my spirits. I said, okay, fine. So I'm now sending it off to the people who do the catalog of merchandise for left-handed people. And uh, we will see what happens. Um, the reason that I chose to read the work of Miriam Diaz de Ocoretz is because she is someone who has really addressed uh, in her life and her work the international perspective. She, and for her, she really accepts the importance of the international perspective in our lives. She was born in Chile and she's a poet, poet and a critic and a translator. And she teaches in Amsterdam at the moment. She teaches Latin American and Afro-American literature. Um, she's translated the work of Adrian Rich. She's done studies on the work of Adrian Rich and is currently doing a comparative study of Afro-American poets in Spanish. The first poem I'm going to read, uh, which is from Icon, one of the issues of Icon magazine. And I have to preface this by saying, in spite of the fact that my name is Gomez, I, do, I don't speak Spanish. Um, it's one of the vagaries of being Afro-American. Um, so I'm not going to read in Spanish, except for maybe one thing. Encadenada, chained. To the work of the word by my own will, night after night, I go over the rough draft of my life. But sometimes, knowing myself as a sunflower, I feel the drive to raise my head because not everything is dancing. For instance, look at that woman. She's been in the bar for hours, afraid that no one would speak to her today. She's brought her cat. I was your cat, one that dances and chats, but finally a cat. What can you say in your defense? Sorry? I am not programmed for this. Please modify your question. The book rustles humbly on the unmade bed. I've read that the world is full of languages, like the hunger for structured time or the dictatorship of musts. I amuse myself collecting my femininity. If only the thousand fragments would fit something, perhaps something exciting might come up. Being a critic of critics is also boring because it would be the same. It may be more interesting to live in a tenement house and to sit unseen eternally close to the window, eternally unseen. It would be easier and oh well to see who comes in and who goes out with whom. Those voices, I wonder what happened. I hear roars of laughter in Santiago. There was no time for suitcases. Now I smell empanadas in Paris, and people are having meetings in New York, but there are tears on a pillow in Stockholm. And there is silence in Romania. I know my country by heart, and by heart the world is full of languages. Be nice appear to be kind, be seen and not seen. 
The sense of autonomy is almost invariably an illusion. In any case, we must foster change. The winds of failure are blowing strongly. You disappointed me. I refuse to believe that my ancestor melted that contrived colossal work with the heat of his greed. And I decided not to see you again, yet I come across you in an ordinary appeal. What am I doing there or at a poetry reading? What are you doing here or window shopping on that avenue or dancing? But I get tired of saying, hi, how are you, and no answer. Not everything in life is dancing. Look at that blood and night mingle, mangling in the breasts of that beat-up woman, and her tears have color and taste. The world is full of languages I don't understand. That was translated by Sarah Miles. I'm going to read a couple of um, very new poems of Miriam. They're, uh, a series of romantic poems that she's working on. She did a rough translation. I whipped out my high school dictionary of Spanish-English and tried to smooth out the translation a little bit. So any rough spots are mine. The good parts are hers. Your dove to my dove opens in secret like a leaf. Over there, the night is captive wanting, weaves its nest of dew. In the center of your eye, the birds of my fountain glimmer. My hands are ringed and mute. I encircle the new dwelling. I am premature flying traveler, flying between waters of geographic indifference, inseparable from light, Flyer, flying, I veer and stretch toward your body of stars, juggling your love. Small angles of lightning are living inside me. In this time between parentheses, let us not speak of death nor history. I want to follow the eclipsing route beyond the most constant garden. I want the soft labia mallow there. I want, I want, I want to take flight deep in the flower galaxy of your love. You come near me from the sea, alien lover. You surprise my rose of the desert. The sands become one in our wild grasses. From the sea you come to me, and I plunge into your tongues of water. This is um, Woman of the Earth, or Mapu. It's also translated by Sarah Miles. On every street corner there's an uproar. One would be enough, the headlines today call out the official rumor that your real name is Juana Problema, that you are daughter of the Wildwood. They say your name is Juana Wildwood Problema. Last night, answering my questions on hypocrisy, you exclaimed, man kisses many hands he would like to see cut off. 
Meanwhile, the neon signs repeat over and over. An Indian is being who never, the, an Indian is a being who never developed, who never really was. Dun, 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 dun. Those bells you don't hear ring the mea culpa, the sweet disdain, and also, ah, Felipe's and Carlos's ghosts, forever flying in a rage because they cannot own the four sacks of potatoes from your field. What is a cross, you ask? Deadwood, railwood ties, a sign of defeat in every road? Don't give in to those dreams that now haunt you, dreams sometimes strange, simpleton squandering of air. You are a sacred tree. Your sacred tree is not dead. It cannot die, Kultrun. It cannot die because it stands firm in you, Mapu. Wana, Mapu, it stands rooted in you. While you name yourself by the light of your dark sun under the earth, This is Chana, which is the name of, of a flamenco dancer, and the, her name means she who knows. This was translated by Susan Sherman, who's the editor of Icon Magazine. As one with water, her whirlwind hair of dusk billows against her flesh as waves. Winter with the spell of her taut muscles upon rocks valiantly surging through snow as one on fire. She dances, her body ebbing, dimming, smoldering, dimming. She dances gypsy energy fueled by the furious sweat of women. Sadness, the beat of her temples, this ground pleading, pleading more, tap, 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 conjuring from silence, tap, tap. Chana knows, she knows woman who scans this globe as always woman, this earth having read it all centuries ago. The last poem I'm going to read, um, when, I teach, when I teach my writing class, I, I always stress how as much as the meaning is the sound of the words, and so I feel it's really putting a writer at a distinct advantage to read them totally in translation. Um, I'm going to read this, and I hope those of you who do speak Spanish in the audience will forgive me. I want to have a sense of those words, and, and they're really important in her work. Hermana, este viaje no es simple. Hay que cabalhar a tientas por nuevas costas, por ignoradas cordilleras, por bosques que no saben de humanos paseos, correr por las selvas, palpitándose en los mapas de las guerras, avanzar entre líneas. Hay que partir antes del alba y olvidar que un duna a alguien se le ocurrió, que habla que enseñar los sueños. Sister, this journey is not simple. You must ride blind, groping for fresh shores, neglected ranges, forests that have never known a human step. Canter through jungles throbbing only in the heart of rebel warrior maps. Advance between lines. 
You must take your leave before sunrise, no longer remembering day, that time when it first dawned on someone to harness your dreams. Thank you. Next, I'd like you to welcome Jessica Hagedorn, who was born and raised in the Philippines. Jessica Hagedorn is the author of Dangerous Music and the award-winning Pet Food and Tropical Apparitions. Her play, Mango Tango, was produced for the public theater by Joseph Papp, and she is currently finishing a novel about the contemporary Philippines called Dog Eaters. Jessica. I took the liberty of choosing two writers today, but I will not go over the time. Uh, these are very brief excerpts. The first writer I'm going to read from is Jacinta Escudos, who is a poet from El Salvador. And uh, this excerpt is from a novel she has written called Notes for a Love Story That Never Was, and it was translated by Gregory Kolovakos. 8.30 p.m. Allow me to write you. Allow me to write you, although I'll probably never get an answer, not even a gesture, nothing. Allow me to dream about your lips, your body, your voice, and your damned eyes full of the world and your name, your name, your goddamn name. You an unending fever, some days more intense like today. Some days more hated, more loved than ever, you, 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 enemy and accomplice, damned and loved, you eternal and ephemeral, love, hate, love like that of scorpions, scorpion, I am your scorpion. Let me kill you with my poison, Death by poisoning, your autopsy will read, and I'll quickly eat your cadaver. And then, then you will be changed into dirt, into sand, and then, unable to defend yourself, I'll throw myself on top of you and I'll make love to you and you won't be able to tolerate it, but you won't be able to pull away from me and your semen will explode into a thousand flowers over the planet and there will be an earthquake and you and I will die together. You'll be condemned to be with me in all the galaxies and reincarnations. Love, cowardly lover, alone, mine, mine and only mine, yours, yours and only yours, you unchaste animal. Deceitful, as base as I am, there's no other place for you in this world except for my clear and deep belly, for only you and your eyes only. It is so, so ancient, so much mine, such a never satisfied whim to swallow your corneas in an eye cup with lemon, devourer of your eyes. I was. I am, I shall always be curse of my life, the two of us damned for having looked at each other, talked, 
enjoyed stroking each other's hands, hair, eyes, eyes, your eyes on a tray for me. I swallow them, and in my delicious womb, they jump around like fleas, like goats, like billiard balls, the circumference of your eyes and the infinite circumference of my insanity, an illness engendered in my being by my contact with you. Where does it begin? Where does it end? You who are going to die inside me, in my skin of a lizard, in my skin of a witch, of a black cat, and then, then so exhausted by the perpetually useless effort to forget each other without any possibility, then our names shouted out simultaneously, invincible, you and I, you and I so alien and so much ours, you and I forever in the darkness, forever. Ah, this manuscript came to my attention because I was on a translation panel and uh, I loved this material. I, I was very ignorant of the writer, uh, who is Elena Poniatowska, one of the most celebrated and respected writers and journalists in Mexico. And uh, these excerpts that I'm going to read today are from a novel entitled, Here's Looking at You, Jesus which is uh, currently in the process of being translated by Magda Bogan, who's going to read to you today. Magda translated House of the Spirits, and I think she's going to read from that in a very short story, also by Elena. The form of this book is the novella Testimonio and was inspired by lengthy interviews that Elena Poniatowska conducted with an 86-year-old illiterate woman named Jesusa, who's still alive today. Jesusa worked as a maid in uh, one of the hotels in Mexico, and how she met Elena goes something like this. Standing in the courtyard of a hotel in Mexico, Elena heard a woman cursing magnificently and was so intrigued by the woman's wonderful use of language that she asked to meet and interview her. So here is a little excerpt from this great novel. And it's all, of course, told in the first person. This is the third time I've been back to Earth. But I never suffered like this before because in my last reincarnation, I was a queen. I know because I had a vision and I saw my train. I was in a beauty parlor. And in one of those tall mirrors that runs straight up to the ceiling, I saw my dress with its train flying out behind, and at the very tip was a triangle of tiger skin sprinkled with black and yellow spots. All my clothes were white. It was a wedding dress, but where the gown came to an end, there was that piece of tiger skin sticking out like the fork on the devil's tail. On both sides of me, Columbine and Pierrot were peering in the mirror, the girl on one side and him on the other. They were both dressed all in white with those black polka dots they always have. I took my vision to the house of God, and they said it was the costume I'll be wearing on Judgment Day, and that the Lord gave me a chance to see myself exactly as I was one of the three times I came to earth. Your only stain is that dark spot on your train, 
That's the only place in you that still needs whitening. If you don't bleach it out, it will devour your innocence. I have a lot on my mind. I don't know when I'm going to pull it all together and scrub off the stains in this life or the next one. Maybe in my next reincarnation. I have a lot of sick souls to look after and we're all going to keep on suffering until I make them well. Everywhere I go, I see the watchful eye in his holy triangle staring out at me through, through the antennas of his eyelashes. If I don't obey him, I might as well not get down on my knees and pray to the saints because I'll be less than a crumb in the hand of God. That's why my earthly path is one long punishment. Why did I come back so poor if last time around I was a queen? I must have a great debt to pay. Why else would the Lord take my parents from me when I was just a child? I've been wandering the earth like a leper ever since to pay off my sins. I must have been real bad, bad as they come, or he wouldn't keep me here this long. He must be trying to get me clean. If you want to recognize the spiritual path, you have to leap many chasms and experience great sufferings. The protector who is our guide reveals himself through our pain. You also have to return several times to earth. It all depends how much you owe. In my first life, I lived with Turks, Hungarians, and Greeks. I know because I saw myself in the dress the Dolorosa used to wear. My head was covered and I was wearing a heavy white robe that brushed the ground. I was in a desert and I counted 12 camels and he was on the 12th, dark-skinned with large eyes and curly lashes, all in white and a turban on his head. He held out his hand and I thought it was going to be dark like his face, but no, it was silver. He reached out like he wanted to pull me on his camel and I jumped back and he was forced to let me go. I began to run. I made the sign of the cross with my hands like this and it must have worked because he couldn't catch me on his fleet foot camel. I kept on running but finally he took out his gun and shot me dead. When I woke up I heard his name, Eastern Star. I had a friend who sold tomatoes, Sister Sebastiana. She had a big stall in the market, but she couldn't keep it up because she got so sick, she came undone. Her body blew up like a balloon, but she wasn't really fat, just swollen. Her feet got all spongy and she couldn't walk. The Lord only knows what she must have owed, but she sure suffered. Naturally, someone told her about the house of God and she came to have a look. I'm worn out and worn down, she told them. My skin aches with loneliness, please help me. The last time I was pregnant, the baby turned to cancer on me and I nearly died. My innards are all rotted out and the doctors say there's nothing they can do. And what's in your heart? Poison. After she accepted the authority of the house of God, they began to treat her. First, they gave her a spiritual operation. They didn't find any babies in her, but they cleaned out all the rot. After that, she started coming to classes. One time, the Lord gave her the gift of vision, and she was able to see everything with her eyes wide open. 
The centuries rolled back and hidden things became visible to her. Sister Sebastiana saw untold hands reaching out to her, trying to touch her. Don't you recognize them? God asked her. They're the hands of young women. Then he looked at her to make her understand that in her last life she was a man, and the hands belonged to all the women she had ruined. They were asking for revenge. For a long time she did penance and made offerings in the Catholic Church, but things didn't get any better. In the house of God they told her all those rotting babies belonged to the women she abandoned in her last reincarnation. Sebastiana got down on her knees and begged to be forgiven. I'm willing to keep suffering, she said, but have mercy on me, Lord. About eight years ago, I saw her in the market, but she was like a stranger. She still had her stall, only she was taking in other people's children, and every single one of them turned out rotten as they come. They never gave her a hand, and not a single one of them ever loved her. I don't know if it's because we were so poor or if that's just the way it was, but my mother's funeral was as poor as the dirt they laid her in. They wrapped her up in a straw mat and I saw them throw her in and shovel earth on top of her just like that. I was standing next to my father, but he was busy talking to his friends and guzzling tequila, so he didn't see me jump into the hole and put my dress over her head to keep the dirt from falling on her face. No one realized I was down there. Suddenly, my father noticed I was missing. I called up to him from down below, and he told them to quit shoveling. I didn't want to come back out. I wanted them to seal me up in there forever with my mama. My mama either died of fright or else the dead man came to get her. She dreamed two little dogs were biting her leg. I just had the most horrible dream, I heard her tell my father. I dreamed two little dogs were biting my leg and I wrung their necks and twisted them around and then I flung them on the ground. What are you talking about, my father said. You must have been dreaming. That's what I said. Now get up and help me take a leak. Since it was a village where you had no other way to relieve yourself, my parents stepped into the courtyard. In the evening, our neighbors used to gather there to talk. At the corner of the house across the street from us, there was a long stone a person could lay down on. That night, there was a full moon so they could see everything. Felipe, what? Who killed him? Killed who? That man on the stone. What are you talking about? That man lying on the stone. I don't see anything. What do you mean you don't see anything? I'm holding on to his feet. I don't see anything, Maria, but if you do, let's get out of here. The next morning, when my father got up to go to work, the first thing he did was see if there were any traces left. The stone was clean. She must have died from the fright, not from the fever, my father told the neighbors, because I took good care of her. I rubbed her with alcohol and I gave her quinine. That dead man she saw in front of Doña Lola's house must have carried her off. My mama was still alive when my father made me a doll out of a squirrel. That was the last time he made me anything. After that, he pretended not to hear or else things just went in one ear and out the other. He slid it down the middle and scooped out all the meat because in Mixtequia they eat them. They sprinkle them with salt, 
pepper and garlic and vinegar or lemon juice. Then they split them open and roast them on a spit. Squirrel is delicious. It tastes like squirrel and it's very good. My father skinned it down to just the meat. Then he cut it open, sprinkled lime on it and put it in the sun. When it was nice and dry, he sewed up its little hands and feet, shoved the stuffing in with a stick and handed it to me. I asked him why it was so hard. Because of the stuffing. What's in it, dirt? No, sawdust. What's sawdust? Ay, Jesusa, just be glad you have it and go out and play. So that's what I did. I wrapped it up in my reboso and carried it around like a baby. Even though it was so hard, I couldn't hold it. I was a real tomboy. I liked war games, hops, hopscotch, wrestling, kicking, and playing with tops and marbles. All the rough games boys would play. You know, killing lizards with stones, smashing iguanas on the rocks. When we went hunting, we'd make a hole in the long reed and that would be our shooter. It never bothered me, killing all those little animals. Why should it? Sooner or later, we all have to die. I don't understand why I was like that as a child. I never let birds hatch their eggs. I'd steal them from the nest and sell them in exchange for the bottle tops or bits and pieces of broken pottery that were our crowns and half crowns, our pesos and pesetas and centavos, all the coins they used back then. Or else I'd build a fire and fry up a batch of baby iguanas, and when they burst, I'd scrape them with a knife, slit them open, and pull out their guts. Then I'd sprinkle them with make-believe salt and call the boys. Come and get it. Step right up. Get it while it's hot. Nice hot iguana. Of course, they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Dirty cheat, pig face, you tricked us. Liar, liar, pants on fire. When I got sick of playing with the boys, I'd scamper up a tree and pitch stones down on them. I went and hung from the highest branch just to give them a hard time, just to pick a fight. I'd smash them on the head and they'd go running to my mama and say I bashed their skull in. She told me to calm down, but I never did. Because from the time I was a little girl, I never could keep still. But now, those days are done and gone. I'm all used up. Finished. No more devil in me anymore. My mama never scolded me, and she never hit me either. She was dark like me and short and fat. After she died, I never played again. Thank you. Next, I'm going to introduce to you Jane Lazar, who is the author of The Mother Knot, a memoir which has just been reissued by Beacon Press, also on loving men, essays published by Dial Press, and Some Kind of Innocence, a novel also published by Dial Press. She's had many articles in The Village Voice and in Feminist Studies, and also you've probably read her work in Ms. Um, she is a faculty member of the Eugene Lang College at the New School for Social Research, where she teaches writing and literature. And she is a member of City Fiction, a newly constituted organization of women writers. She has recently completed a new novel called The Powers of Charlotte. Jane Lazar will be reading from the German writer Krista Wolf, and she'll tell you something about her.
Yes, is this, is this fine for hearing? I guess, yeah. It's not comfortable to stand anyway. Uh, Krista Wolf is a very well-known East German writer of both novels and memoirs, which, is, which are two categories which she likes to mix up, uh, to my pleasure. She's written The Quest for Krista T, Patterns of Childhood, which originally was called A Model Childhood, No Place on Earth, and Cassandra, which is her fourth book. Uh, which was translated by Jan van Hurk. I'm not sure I pronounced that right, H-E-U-R-C-K. In Cassandra, uh, she combines the novel and memoir forms to recreate the story of the fall of Troy, but this time from Cassandra's point of view. Cassandra is the princess of Troy, if you don't remember, daughter of King Priam. She asks the gods for the gift of prophecy and Apollo grants her wish, but she is fated never to be believed. And so her predictions and warnings that Troy is doomed go unheeded. Now Troy has been defeated after the long war with Greece, and Cassandra, having been taken prisoner by Agamemnon, is on her way to Greece, where she knows she will be killed by Clytemnestra, as Agamemnon will also. In the moments before her death, she thinks back to everything that brought her here. And in this book, Krista Wolf recreates the story of Cassandra in a novella and follows the novella with four essays in which Krista Wolf tells us how she became obsessed with Cassandra until the two voices thematically of Cassandra and Krista Wolf merge in, a very, in very subtle ways. And so, I'm going to border the reading from the novella with two very short paragraphs from Krista Wolf speaking to you through her memoirs, just so that you get a, a slight idea of the complexity and range of this book. From the conditions of a narrative, August 21st, 1981. I am reading some writings of Hans Henry Jan, who stated on May 6, 1949, when the first cracks appeared in the Allies' anti-Hitler coalition, the program has been laid down for World War III. He recognized immediately the devastating significance of the atomic bomb. He declared, there is no such thing as an armed peace. Peace is unarmed, or it is not peace, regardless of what one thinks one has to defend. Twice in this century, war has arisen out of armed peace, each war crueler than its predecessor. Brecht said exactly the same thing in the 50s. If we do not arm ourselves, we will have peace. If we arm ourselves, we will have war. I do not see how anyone could think differently about this. This is essentially the position that Cassandra takes in Troy. This is from the novella. Here I end my days, helpless, and nothing, nothing I could have done or not done, willed or thought, could have led me to a different goal. Deeper than any other feeling, deeper even than my fear, this imbues, etches, poisons me. The indifference of the celestials to us of earth. 
unavailing the venture to set our little warmth against their icy chill. Vain our attempt to evade their atrocities, long have I known that. But a couple of nights ago on the sea crossing, when storms threatened to smash our ship from every direction, when no one could hold on unless he was lashed down, when I found Marpessa secretly untying the knots which bound her and the twins to each other and to the mast, and being attached to a longer rope than the others, I threw myself at her unhesitatingly and unthinkingly to prevent her from abandoning the lives of her children and mine to the indifferent elements so that I could surrender them to mad people instead. When, shrinking from her gaze, I crouched again in my place beside the whimpering, spewing Agamemnon, I could only marvel at the durable stuff of those cords that bind us to life. I saw that Marpessa, who as once in the past would not talk to me, was better prepared for what we are suffering now than I, the seeress. For I derived joy from everything I saw, joy, not hope, and lived on in order to see. Why did I want the gift of prophecy, come what may? To speak with my voice, the ultimate. I did not want anything more, anything different. If need be, I could prove that. But to whom? Toward the end of the novella, Cassandra is brought before the council, and they ask her to give her blessing to the final battles of the war against Greece. Hecuba, her mother, led me straight to the council, no, wrong, to the hall where the council used to be held where conspirators crouched together now, led by King Priam. They refused to let us in. Hecuba declared that they, the king above all, would be responsible for the consequences if we were not admitted now. The messenger came back. We were to come in, but only for a short while. They had no time. For as long as I can remember, the council had no time for matters of importance. At first, I could not hear because I was seeing my father, a ruin of a man. Did he know who I was? Was he drowsing? The matter concerned Polyxena. No, it concerned Troy. No, it concerned Achilles the brute. It concerned the plan that Polyxena was supposed to lure Achilles into our temple, into the temple of Apollo. Under the pretext of wanting to marry him, one suspicion after another raced through my head. Marry? But nothing to worry about, I was told. Just pretend. In reality, I could not believe my ears. In reality, our brother Paris would sally forth. Sally forth. Paris himself used that term. From behind the image of a god, where he would be hidden, and he would strike Achilles in his vulnerable spot, the heel. Why there, specifically? He had confided his vulnerable spot to our sister, Polyxena. And Polyxena was playing along, naturally. How does she feel about it? Paris asked insolently. She's looking forward to it. That means you're using Polyxena as a decoy for Achilles. Broad grin. You've got it. That's it. 
Achilles will come into the temple without shoes. She insisted he fulfill that condition. Laughter all around. Alone? Well, what do you think? Of course alone. And he will not leave the temple alive? And Polyxena, will she wait for him there alone? Except for Paris and Eumelos, and except for us, of course, but we'll stand outside. And so Achilles will embrace Polyxena there? Make believe, when his attention is sufficiently distracted, laughter, Paris's arrow will strike him. Laughter. And Polyxena has agreed to this? Agreed? She's eager for it, a real Trojan woman. But why isn't she here? We're only settling the details here, which don't concern her. We're doing the cool planning. Being a woman, she would only get in a muddle. I closed my eyes and I saw the scene in all its details, heard Polyxena's laughter, saw the murder in the temple, Achilles as a corpse, oh, who would not yearn to see that sight, still clinging to Polyxena. You are using her. Using whom? Polyxena. But aren't you capable of getting the point? It's not she we're concerned with. We're concerned with Achilles. That's exactly what I'm saying. Until then, my father had been silent. Now he spoke. Be silent, Cassandra. Furiously, angrily, I said, Father, don't try that on me anymore, he said. Father, I indulged you for far too long. All right, I said. She's sensitive. All right, she does not see the world as it is. She's a bit up in the clouds, takes herself seriously. Women like to do that. She's spoiled. She can't fit in. High strung, stuck up. About what, daughter? Can you tell me that, with your nose always up in the air and shooting off your mouth and despising those who fight for Troy? After all, you know our situation. And if you don't endorse this plan of ours for killing Achilles, the worst of our enemies right now, do you know what I'd call that? Lending aid and comfort to the enemy. Such stillness around me, inside me, like now, like here. My father went on to say that not only should I immediately endorse the plans which were up for deliberation, I should also undertake to keep silent about them, and once they were carried out, to expressly defend them against all comers. So this, though unexpected, was the moment I had feared. I was not unprepared. Why was it so hard? Rapidly, with uncanny rapidity, I considered the possibility that they might be right. What does that mean, right? Considered the possibility that the question of rights, Polyxena's right, my right, did not even arise because a duty, the duty to kill our worst enemy, ate up the right. And Polyxena? She was headed for ruin, no doubt about that. She was already a hopeless case. Now, Cassandra, you're going to be sensible, aren't you? I said, no. You don't agree to the plan? No. But you will keep silent? No, I said. My mother, Hecuba, grasped my arm fearfully. She knew what was coming now. So did I. The king said, seize her. Once again, the hands grabbing me, not too hard, just enough to lead me away. Men's hands. No release through faints or visions. As we left, I turned around. My look fell on my brother, Paris. He did not want the blame, but what could he do? 
Did they not have him in their power forever because of his blunder with Helen? Weak, brother, weak, a weakling, hungry to conform. Just look at yourself in the mirror. With this final look, I saw through him completely, and he saw through himself too, but he could not take it. More rashly than anyone, he pressed on with that act of madness that was now inevitable. They say that afterward, he let them display him, riding a straddle to the people and the troops as the conqueror of Achilles. Paris, our hero, that could not diminish his self-contempt, which was incurable. In profoundest darkness and uttermost stillness, they led me to a place which I had always regarded as uncanny and menacing, the grave of the heroes. That is what we used to call it. And we children used to use it for tests of courage. It lay apart in a protruding and abandoned section of the fortress that gave directly onto the wall. Often I could hear the sentries on patrol. They did not know that I was down there below them. No one knew except the two confidants of Emilos who had taken me and the two dissolute women who used to bring me food. I had never seen the like of those two in Troy before. Someone must have dug them up especially for me from the lowest depths, from the place people sink to when they have given up on themselves. They are intended to harshen my punishment. I thought at first, and I even caught myself thinking nonsensically, if only my father knew about that, until the voice of reason asked me ironically, what if he did? Would they let me out of here? Would they bring me different women? Better food? No. From the first hour on, I worked away incessantly at the wicker work that lined the round cavity where I could just barely stand up in the center. I found a thin, loose strand of wicker and pulled it out of the weave. Oh, it took hours, maybe days. I set out to release it completely, the whole length, as far as it went. For more than an hour now, I have tried to do the same thing, but the willow basket where I am sitting is newer. Its weave is not so rotted and filthy. I was seized, am seized, with zeal for the task, as if my life depended on it, and first, when to my good fortune I still felt numb and insensible and told myself they could not do this to me, not me, not my father, I believed that they had buried me alive, for I did not know where I was, and I had heard them carefully wall up the hole after they put me through it. The stench that assailed me, such things did not exist. Where was I? How long does it take a person to starve to death? I crept around in the dust, what do I mean, dust? It was loathsome rot. Was my container round? Yes, round and lined with wicker, which did not admit a single ray of light, even when a day and a night and another day had presumably gone by. So very likely it was thickly plastered with mud on the outside. That is what I thought, and I was right. Finally, I found bones and realized where I was. Someone was moaning. Mustn't lose my mind now, my voice. I did not lose my mind. Then after a long time, the scraping sound, the trap door that opened close to the ground, I did not see anything, but with difficulty, difficulty I found it out. The bowl was shoved in and I tipped it over when I reached for it, tipped over the water. Then the flat barley cake, and for the first time the lewd screeching of one of the women. That was the underworld, but I had not been buried. I was not to die of hunger. 
Was I disappointed? I could always refuse the food. It would have been easy. It may be that that is what they expected. After two or three days, I believe, I began to eat. And during the long intervals, I hardly slept at all. I pulled, tugged, twisted, and tore at the wicker. Something that was stronger than everything else was tearing at me. Many days, I thought of only one thing. One day, it must be over. What must be over? I remember that suddenly I paused, sat for a long time without moving, struck by the lightning realization. This is pain. It was pain, which I had thought I knew. Now I saw that until then it had barely grazed me. You do not distinguish the boulder that buries you beneath it, but only the force of the impact. So my pain at the loss of everything I had called father was threatening to crush me with its weight. The fact that I was able to give a name to the pain, the fact that it answered to its name, gave me a breath of air. One day it must be over. Nothing lasts forever. This was the second breath of relief. Although relief is too strong a word for it, there is a kind of pain that stops hurting because it is everything. Air, earth, water, each bite of food, each breath you draw, every movement. No, it is indescribable. I never spoke about it. No one asked me about it. One day, the trap door scraped open when it was not mealtime. I waited in vain to hear a screech. A cultivated male voice, so such a thing did exist, spoke to me, Andron, the handsome Andron. Here, Cassandra, as if we were meeting at supper at the palace. Come here, take this. What was he giving me? Something hard, sharp. I felt it with trembling fingers. Did I recognize it? Oh, that beautiful voice, swollen with triumph. Yes, it was the sword belt of Achilles, which, as I must surely be able to imagine, he said, could have been obtained only by killing its wearer. Yes, everything had gone according to plan. Yes, the Greek hero Achilles was dead. And Polyxena, please, Polyxena, curtly, far too curtly, she's alive. The trapdoor fell. I was left alone. Now came the hardest part. Achilles, the brute, was dead. The plot had been successful. If things had gone according to my wishes, the brute would still be alive. They had proved right. When you are successful, Step, thought by thought. Ten times, a hundred times, I stood before Priam. A hundred times, I tried to agree with him, to answer yes at his command. A hundred times, I said no again. My life, my voice, my body would produce no other answer. You don't agree? No. But you will keep silent? No. No, no, no. And this is Krista Wolf. For women, writing is a medium which they place between themselves and the world of men. Then they will at least admire me. The inevitable moment when the woman who writes 
who sees in Cassandra's case no longer represents anything or anyone except herself. But who is that? Does there exist an ominous right or duty to bear witness? Tenacious of life, the supposition that someone must always go on writing. Next, I'd like you to welcome Magda Bogan, who is a writer, translator, and journalist, the author of The Woman Troubadours, which was published by W.W. W. Norton. Uh, currently, she is writer-in-residence at the City College Graduate Writing Program, also a recipient of grants from NEA and CAPS. And she will be reading from Isabel Allende and, and Elena Poniatowska. Right. Well, lower? Yes, I go a little bit lower. It's perfect. That's great. Erica Zhang, in her opening remarks, said that every woman writer has a secret or several secret women writers, and I could hardly agree more. I've been deeply nourished by many writers who are women. I also feel that some of those writers are too much of a too well-kept secret. And as a woman who also translates, I've felt a tremendous longing and need to specifically seek out women to translate and hope that more of them will make it through the awesome filter of publishing to get translated so that we have more secrets out in the world. Um, faced with the choice of picking favorites, I had to neglect several of the writers that I most deeply respect because they are either terribly translated or not translated at all, and I just want to throw out a few names to anyone who can read um, these languages. In Italian, Dacia Maraini, an extraordinary contemporary novelist who is prolific. Natalia Ginsberg, who, at risk of offending her translator, if that person is still alive, was not given adequate due, I believe, in translations in the 50s and needs to be retranslated and brought up to date. Um, uh, Danuta Vidali, a poet. Um, in French, Albertine Sarrazin, whom some of you may have read. I don't think she has been translated, or if she was, the stuff is long since gone. And uh, Maria Tercera Sinfonia, Spanish poet, 20th century. Okay. Um, at a risk of giving a surfeit of Elena Poniatowska, I can't resist reading this short story. I think that she's one of the most original women writing today, and um, this story is the sort of little stuff that she tosses off between books, many uh, of which she writes. Um, it's called A Little Fairy Tale. From time to time, I should say this, as you can tell by her name, she's Mexican and of Polish extraction, but you also won't know from um, her name that she was raised partly in France. From time to time, we would hear about the wild boar, and I would look down at the forest. We lived up above in a house held back by a retaining wall that kept us from falling down into the sea of trees, but to me they looked so strong that I was sure they would support us with their branches if the wall ever collapsed. 
I could see them from my window. They were different at different times of day, at noon so thick that the sun's rays bounced off without penetrating them, a single black ominous tree at night, and at dawn a pale green lake emerging through the mist. In my head I could hear old Madame Do saying, the woods are dark, drawing out the ah, the a, sorry, of dark into a long, terrifying tunnel. The woods are dark, very, very dark. Sophia, who was always the stronger one, or at any rate less morbidly inclined than I, would say, don't listen to her, she's old. She just doesn't want us going down to gather wild strawberries. Sophia had a special predilection for the tiny, aromatic strawberries that grow at the foot of trees. She never waited, but ate them on the spot, so that by the time we got back home, our basket would be empty. Even on the way uphill, she'd still be saying, pass me the basket, I'll carry it, and finishing them off by the fistful, fistful leaves and all. I've always liked to put my hands in cracks and crevices, to dig. I can spend hours standing at the sink, pulling garbage from the drain, along with leaves, tangled hair, dirt, and hardened soap. The closer I get to unclogging it, the more excited I become. As the feeling of satisfaction rises through my body, filling my mouth, I think of our revolutionary generals shouting to their men, nail them, lay into them, let them have it, kill the sons of bitches, and I feel I'm doing something useful, equivalent to what they did, although I'm not completely sure that what they did was right. In the forest, while Sophia gathered strawberries, I would stop to stroke the rough bark, to plunge my hands into the damp earth, to cut the stems of mushrooms with their fascinating texture. I'd stroke them with my index finger for a long time, watching their skin stiffen like the leaves of certain plants that tighten and close on themselves. You and your poison, Sophia would shout with her mouth full. Sometimes I would find a dark black truffle beneath a bed of musty leaves. You're going to turn into a mushroom, she'd say, but I didn't move. And when Sophia called, come here, there are piles of them here, I never went because I couldn't tear myself away from the damp moss, the lichen, but above all that moss that is like the earth's softest hair, its childhood down, a sweet, delicate fleece that went back and forth across my face. When the news broke, the whole village was stunned. The boar had gored Berta. They brought her up from the woods, thin and transparent, after a two-day search. She had been wounded in the stomach and died in their arms on the way uphill. She was wearing a white dress, and they had found her basket almost full. She didn't eat her berries. The boar had bitten her, or charged her, or who knows. The long and short of it is that she had bled to death, and neither Sophia nor I was allowed to see her. The peasants made her a stretcher out of branches and covered her with leaves. Her whole face was hidden with green leaves, so no one would be left with the image, the expression fear had stamped there. For days, no one in the village talked of anything but the wild boar and how on Sunday, a holy day, a posse would go down into the forest to avenge her death. Someone had seen the bloody eyes of the beast glowing through the branches. Berta's father would lead the hunters, not her fiancé, who had fled drunk and crazed, arms flailing toward Cahors. For days, I circled Madame Do's windowless house. I wanted to speak to her, but she never came out. I never saw her open the door, and her broom still stood to one side, leaning in the same place. The pail filled with cobwebs, the chickens cackled untended, left to fend for themselves. Finally, one Thursday, Thursdays are always good days, white and round, days for talking, I saw her stooped back just ahead on the path, her shoulders covered by her black shawl. Madame Do, Madame Do! I walked to her, to her house, and she invited me in. The broom was still leaning against the wall. No one had swept. 
She knew that I wanted to ask about the woods, which is to say about the wild boar. She offered me a small low chair, and I liked having to crouch down to sit in it the way I do when I'm looking for mushrooms in the earth. Outside, a cold wind was blowing. She told me in her cracked voice that the boar's eyes were always red and that his hair stood on end almost like a porcupine's. She said he was black and thick and weighed a lot in the dark. He charges like a huge pig. She pulled her shawl across her chest to protect herself from an imaginary attack. He has hoofs like the devil. Didn't you know that the devil has hoofs? What I want to know is why he killed Berta. For her flower. Her flower? What flower? The black flower that grows between a woman's legs. She saw the terror on my lips and said gently, Yes, a tiny black flower. You don't have yours yet. Madame Doe's old nose lengthened into a hook. That's what wild boars hunt. That's what they eat. Eat? Yes, they tear it out by the roots once and for all. I ran out of there as fast as I could and didn't stop for weeks and weeks until I was 23. <laughs> the day of my wedding was also my birthday. The guests all remarked on the coincidence and offered double congratulations. How nice to be getting married on the day you were born. They told me I was being born again to love. My mother, in her ramblings, always spoke of the week of four Thursdays, and she made up a secret one just for me in French, la semaine des quatre jeudis. But I live in Mexico and have only been to France two times, and the French are very exact about their days. They never lose track. On my wedding day, she lifted my organdy veil and whispered in my ear, now you'll really have your week of four Thursdays. I thought the veil was holding me aloft, and with a smile I stretched out my arms that were swathed in white. He struck head-on from his powerful tuxedo. I saw him coming straight toward me from the dark, his head lowered. I heard the rumble of his hoofs. When he was a few yards away, I could see his eyes glowing red beneath his thick black eyebrows. On the broad plains of his thinker's brow, I saw the erect hairs, like a porcupine's. He breathed into my face as his mustached mouth drew close. I, who had begun to caress the fascinating texture of the mushrooms, to feel their damp beneath my fingertips, fell backwards, crack, crack, crack. And when he put his arms around me, I fell down, down, onto a steep path that descended to the deepest reaches of the woods. My screams must have pierced the thin walls of the hotel, because the next morning, an old woman with a hooked nose and a broom came rushing toward me. You must be the new bride. And just as speedily, she handed me a white cup of herb tea. Drink this. It will clean out your stomach. I almost spilled it when he entered haughtily on his gleaming hoofs, and in the noon heat of Merida, immediately announced, slamming his fist on the table, it's better to visit the ruins at dusk when the sun is down. Without taking her eyes off me, the old lady insisted, drink your tea. Can't you see you spilled your honeymoon? Then she brought us the menu. It's almost dinner time. May I recommend tacos stuffed with black beans with fed pheasant, venison, or wild boar? He ordered tacos with wild boar and ate them lost in thought. I washed down a bowl of lime soup, cleansing myself with its consoling water. The sky had turned purple from the heat. Can I bring you anything else? And this old hag, why is she being so attentive, he asked, wiping his mustache that was rotting in sauce. I didn't know how to tell him that women like me have always had a fairy godmother. The same scream was heard again that night, but over the years it grew fainter and less frequent. I gave birth to some little bisons who took their first wobbly steps holding onto my arm. 
Now that my hair has begun to turn white, my only wish is to return to the house in the mountains and go down to the forest with my basket, to walk beneath the arching trees, the thick ferns, to tread the ochres and yellows, choose the path, put my hands into the earth, find the truffle, and feel the little creatures who make their home in the dense weeds. But I'm afraid it's only an illusion, a fairy tale that I will have to try again in my next incarnation, because we're all given a second chance, aren't we? It's only fair, after all. You can always start over again, meet up with some other animal, a unicorn, for example, or a lion with a flat head like in the tapestries, or a swan like Leda's that made love to her by covering her with its wings, or a deer. It doesn't always have to be a wild boar, does it? A fairy tale, yes, because it's late now, and I don't have, it, have what it takes for all this jousting. And the little dog laughed to see such sport, right? And all I know is that they all lived everly happily after and had many children and rode in a carriage and all the king's horses and all the king's men. Do you want me to tell it all over again? I guess we're running late. Um, I'll just read from the final pages of Isabella Allende's book, The House of the Spirits. Um, I particularly like this section, and I want to read it, among other reasons, because a lot of people who don't like it have said that she's copying Garcia Marquez, who at the end of A Hundred Years of Solitude sort of blows up his whole literary edifice and turns it back on itself. And this book, like Garcia Marquez, ends with its own first sentence. But I think that Isabel Allende is doing something quite extraordinary and very different from Garcia Marquez, which is that she's reaffirming here a horizontal continuity of women and using seeming repetition to affirm a, a matrilineal descent. And, um, well, I won't go on and on and on, or it will become a lecture. Um, anyway, um, these, the narrator of this book, we find out in the epilogue, is the great granddaughter, if I have the generations right, of the first woman mentioned, Clara. And it's the need to survive torture that makes her into a writer. So skipping over 400 pages. <laughs> um, do I have four minutes? What? Five to seven minutes. Okay, I think we can do it. Um, this begins as she's telling her 90-year-old grandfather what happened to her in the concentration camp. This is her... Um, she begins at where I start. She tells how she was released from jail and dumped in a sort of dump and, and saved by people who live nearby. I heard the engine and thought they were going to run me down and that my name would appear in the papers saying I had died in a traffic accident, but the vehicle drove away without touching me. I waited for a while, paralyzed with fear and cold, until I finally decided to pull off the blindfold and see where they had left me. I looked around. It was an empty lot full of garbage with rats scampering among the refuse. There was a pale moon that allowed me to make out in the distance the outlines of a wretched slum with houses made of cardboard planks and corrugated metal. I realized I must pay attention to what the guard had said and stay there until morning. I would have spent the night there, but suddenly a boy appeared, crouching in the shadows. He motioned to me. 
Since I had nothing to lose, I walked toward him, stumbling. When I reached him, I saw his small, anxious face. He threw a blanket over my shoulders, took me by the hand, and led me to the settlement without saying a word. We walked squatting, avoiding the street and the few lamps that were lit. A couple of dogs began to bark, but no heads appeared to see what was going on. We crossed a dirt courtyard where pieces of clothing hung like pennants from a wire and entered a dilapidated hut like all the others. Inside, a single bulb cast, bulb cast its somber light. I was moved by the extreme poverty. The only furniture was a pine table, two crude chairs, and a bed on which several children were sleeping. A short, dark woman came out to meet me. Her legs were crossed with veins and her eyes were sunk in a web of generous wrinkles that did not make her look old. She smiled and I saw that some of her teeth were missing. She came up to me and straightened the blanket with a brusque, timid gesture that took the place of the hug she was afraid to give me. I'm going to give you a little cup of tea. I don't have any sugar, but something warm will do you good, she said. She told me they had heard the van and knew what it meant to hear a vehicle in that out-of-the-way place during curfew. They had waited until they were sure it had gone away, and then she had sent the boy out to see what had been left. They had expected to find a body. They sometimes leave us the bodies of people they've shot, she said, to intimidate us. We stayed up all night talking. She was one of those stoical, practical women of our country, the kind of woman who has a child with every man who passes through her life, and on top of that takes in other people's abandoned children, her own poor relatives, and anybody else who needs a mother, a sister, or an aunt the kind of woman who's the pillar of many other lives, who raises her children to grow up and leave her, and lets her men leave too without a word of reproach because she has more pressing things to worry about. She looked like so many others I had met in the soup kitchens, in my Uncle Jaime's clinic, at the church office where they would go for information on their disappeared, and in the morgue where they would go to find their dead. I told her she had run an enormous risk rescuing me, and she smiled. It was then that I understood that the days of Colonel Garcia and all those like him are numbered because they have not been able to destroy the spirit of these women. The next morning, she took me to a close family friend who had a horse-drawn cart for hauling freight. She asked him to take me home, and that's how I arrived here. Along the way, I could see the city in all its terrible contrasts, the huts surrounded by makeshift walls to create the illusion they do not exist, the cramped gray center, and the high district with its English gardens, its parks, its glass skyscrapers, and its fair-haired children riding bicycles. Even the dogs looked happy to me, everything in order, everything clean, everything calm, and that solid peace of a conscience without memory. This neighborhood is like another country. My grandfather listened sadly. A world he had thought was good had crumbled at his feet. Well, since it looks as if we're going to stay here and wait for Miguel, we're going to fix this place up a little, he said after a moment's silence. Skip, skip, skip. It was my grandfather who had the idea that we should write this story. That way you'll be able to take your roots with you if you ever have to leave, my dear, he said, which happened to Isabelian. We unearthed the old albums from the forgotten nooks and crannies of the house. Here, on my grandmother's table, is the stack of photographs. Rosa the Beautiful behind, beside a faded swing, my mother with Pedro Tercero Garcia at the age of four, feeding corn to the chickens in the courtyard of Tres Marias, my grandfather when he was young and stood six feet tall, irrefutable proof that Federalist curse came true and that his body shrank in the same proportions as his soul, my uncle's Jaime Nicolás, one dark, somber, gigantic, and vulnerable, the other lean, graceful, volatile, and smiling, also Nana and the Del Valle grandparents before they were killed in the accident, everyone in short except the noble Jean de Satigny, 
of whom no scientific trace remains and whose very existence I have begun to doubt. I began to write with the help of my grandfather, whose memory remained intact down to the last second of his 90 years. In his own hand, he wrote a number of pages, and when he felt that he had written everything he had to say, he lay down on Clara's bed. I sat beside him to wait with him, and death was not long in coming, taking him by surprise as he lay sleeping peacefully. Perhaps he was dreaming that it was his wife who held his hand and kissed his forehead, because in his final days she did not leave him for a second, following him around the house, peering over his shoulder when he was reading in his library, lying down beside him and leaning her beautiful curly head against his shoulder when he got into bed. At first she was just a mysterious glow, but as my grandfather slowly lost the rage that had tormented him throughout his life, she appeared as she had been at her best, laughing with all her teeth and stirring up the other spirits as she sailed through the house. She also helped us write, and thanks to her presence, Esteban Trueva was able to die happy, murmuring her name, Clara, clearest, clairvoyant. When I was in the doghouse, I wrote in my mind that one day Colonel Garcia would stand before me in defeat and that I would avenge myself on all those who need to be avenged. But now I have begun to question my own hatred. Within a few short weeks, ever since I returned to the house, it seems to have become deluded, to have lost its sharp edge. I am beginning to suspect that nothing that happens is fortuitous, that it all corresponds to a fate laid down before my birth, and that Esteban Garcia is part of the design. He is a crude, twisted line, but no brush stroke is in vain. The day my grandfather tumbled his grandmother, Pancha Garcia, among the rushes of the riverbank, he added another link to the chain of events that had to complete itself. Afterward, the grandson of the woman who was raped repeats the gesture with the granddaughter of the rapist, and perhaps 40 years from now, my grandson will knock Garcia's granddaughter down among the rushes and so on down through the centuries in an unending tale of sorrow, blood, and love. When I was in the doghouse, I felt as if I were assembling a jigsaw puzzle in which each piece had a specific place. Before I put the puzzle together, it all seemed incomprehensible to me, but I was sure that if I ever managed to complete it, the separate parts would each have meaning and the whole would be harmonious. Each piece has a reason for being the way it is, even Colonel Garcia. At times I feel as if I had lived all this before and that I have already written these very words, but I know it was not I. It was another woman who kept her notebook so that one day I could use them. I write, she wrote, that memory is fragile and the space of a single life is brief, passing so quickly that we never get a chance to see the relationship between events. We cannot gauge the consequences of our acts and we believe in the fiction of past, present, and future but it may also be true that everything happened simultaneously, as the three Mora sisters said, who could see the spirits of all eras mingled in space. That's why my grandmother Clara kept her notebooks, in order to see things in their true dimension and to defy her own poor memory. And now I seek my hatred and cannot seem to find it. I feel its flame going out as I come to understand the existence of Colonel Garcia and the others like him, as I understand my grandfather and piece things together from Clara's notebooks, my mother's letters, the ledgers of Tres Marias, and the many other documents spread before me on the table. It would be very difficult for me to avenge all those who should be avenged, because my revenge would be just another part of the same inexorable right. I have to break that terrible chain. I want to think that my task is life and that my mission is not to prolong hatred, but simply to fill these pages while I wait for Miguel, while I bury my grandfather, whose body lies beside me in this room, 
while I wait for better times to come, while I carry this child in my womb, the daughter of so many rapes, or perhaps of Miguel, but above all, my own daughter. My grandmother wrote in her notebooks that bore witness to life for 50 years. Smuggled out by certain friendly spirits, they miraculously escaped the infamous pyre in which so many other family papers perished. I have them here at my feet, bound with colored ribbons, divided according to events and not in chronological order, just as she arranged them before she left. Clara wrote them so they would help me now to reclaim the past and overcome terrors of my own. The first is an ordinary school copybook with 20 pages, written in a child's delicate calligraphy. It begins like this. Barabbas came to us by sea. Thank you. I want to thank all the readers. Will the readers join me, please, and take another hand of applause? Maga, Jane, Amy, come on. Thank you. I'm sorry that Margaret Atwood and Carol Asher and Joanne Acolytis had emergencies and couldn't be here, but I want to thank the people who filled in at the last moment and who shared themselves so generously. It was really a celebration of sisterhood. And I'd like to ask you all to stay for a reception and some talk, and you can ask questions of the readers and, and so on. So please join us for a reception following. Thank you. <laughs>